Good morning, church. <clears throat> this morning, I want you to try to imagine, although I don't want this to happen, that you are moving away from Pickerington. So you got to move. Maybe a job change or um, a family need, or for some reason you have to move, and you're moving to a new town. And in this new town, you're going to need to um, place your membership and join a body of believers in this new town. And you find out that you have a close friend of yours who used to be a member at a particular church of the town that you're moving to. Uh, Maybe he or she has since moved away, but you call them to ask them, what is the church like there where you're going to move to? Whatever town you're imagining right now, what is the church like there? And I want you to imagine your friend, he or she, answering this way. That, oh, that church there, they have a strong faith. These people have an incredible faith. And you wouldn't believe it. They aren't just faithful people. They have an unbelievable amount of love for each other. Every member there is known. Every member is loved. Every member is cared for. These people don't just have faith and love. They don't put up with evil. So if they see sin or evil kind of sneaking into its members out of love and compassion and care, they deal with that evil. And when people teach things that might not be according to Scripture, those people are corrected right away on the spot and helped. And these people have been faithful for many, many years. They haven't given up. And boy, these people stay true to us right. If you heard that message, if you heard that uh, description of a body of believers, would you feel pretty comfortable joining in with them? You can give me a, some feedback. You feel pretty comfortable? Sound good? Yeah. Uh, that sounds great to me. In fact, that, that would be a body of people that I would want to join together with. In fact, I would love for those words to be words that we use to describe our family here. Amen to that? Wouldn't that be great? But let me ask you one question. What if I told you there was something missing from that description? And it's not just a, like icing on the cake, like if they got this, it would be great, but if they don't, it's not a big deal. What if I told you something vital to the longevity and health of that body depends on them getting this one thing? What do you think that thing would be? You see, what I just described for you in that scenario is exactly the way that the Bible describes the church At Ephesus, if you combine Paul's words, what he described there in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, and then later in Revelation when John is writing the letters to the churches in Asia, Ephesus is 1, and chapter 2, verses 1 through about 9, is a description of of the Ephesian church there as well. And in spite of all of these incredible positive descriptions, Paul tells us in our passage this morning, That he labors over and over. He's fervent in praying that this body of believers would get this one thing and not miss it. And this one thing is a collective church-wide hope. You see, this church in Ephesus has faith. They have love. They don't put up with evil. They correct false teaching. They labor year after year and don't give up. But one thing Paul is adamant about, he is so concerned about, is that collectively, the church in Ephesus doesn't really have a hope. 
And so the question I want to consider with you for just a few moments is this. Why does it matter for a church to have hope? Oftentimes we think about the idea of hope as an individual kind of gift or blessing. It's sort of like the icing on the cake in Christianity. You know, we've got the things we've got to labor in. We've got the things we've got to put up with. We've got the things we have to do. But if you can actually squeeze out a little bit of hope inside of all of the things you're doing to be what we call a Christian, that's great. It's kind of icing on the cake. And it's oftentimes seen as a very personal thing. Do you have hope? Do you have joy? Do you have excitement? But Paul here is actually not talking about just little individual bite-sized versions of hope. He's talking about the body of believers collectively sharing in a hope. Why do you think that's important? Why does it matter for us to have a shared, common, expressed hope? Well, Paul's going to spend some time with us this morning in these verses telling us the access to hope, where we get hope, how it really starts. He reminds us of the substance of hope, which we've talked about already the last few weeks. But he's going to leave us at the end with this, and here's where I want to spend our time. The impact when a church has hope. Not just personal, but collective hope. So that's what we're going to look at, okay? Number one, how does a church access hope? How does it find its way into having hope? It's sort of like if you think about it this way, figuring out things to do is, is something we're kind of good at. We can go to the scripture and we have a hermeneutic, it's the fancy word for how you study the Bible, called command example and necessary inference. And we study the Bible to dissect scripture to know what we're supposed to do. So we come to God's word and we say, God, tell me the obligations I have, the commandments I need to keep, the things I need to obey. And we use that to understand what to do. But how does a church actually access having hope? What makes hope possible? Well, we see this in a lot of ways actually kind of bear itself out. What makes hope possible for you, for me, for a church, is the confidence you have in the ones who can give you the things that you want, the things that you're longing for. Let me give you an example. Let's say uh, our college kids are back. Good to see our college kids. They're here for probably another week or so. Let's say one of our college kids gets a really poor uh, test score. I know it wouldn't happen to any of our kids, but um, this, this, this is why it's an illustration. It's not real. But let's say they just perform really poorly on a test. Aaron, pay attention. This is going to be. You know. <laughs> let's say they perform really poorly. And that student wants to get a good grade in the class. If they have a professor that is well known in the university to be a professor that curves the score, that, that, that changes the score at the end to try to modify the grades to improve them, all of a sudden that student might have a little bit more hope, right? Because they know that that person holds the power, technically the student does, but that person holds the power to give them the grade and they don't want to get a failing grade. And so when they learn that that person, that professor, has the, has the character to curve scores, it creates in them hope because they have confidence in that being. It works very similarly with Christianity. See, our access to hope, I'm not just talking about what hope is, but our access to having hope here starts with a confidence that we have in the one who promises 
that hope. We just sang the song that Alan led for us. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. You see, the Christian hope is actually built upon not just the idea of what future circumstances will look like, because actually heaven is not something we can fully describe. We, we have images and pictures of what we hope it will be like. But the actual thing of what it's going to be is not yet fully revealed. John even said it this way, what we will be when he comes, we don't fully know yet. We just know we'll be like him. We don't know what that is. But the basis, their access into having hope collectively is not built upon a full understanding of what the future will be, but the basis of God's character, who God is. You see, most people in this life know something about God that is true. Most people, uh, even people that wouldn't call themselves the believers, might be able to articulate something about God that would be true. Some people in this life believe things about God that are not true. There are people that believe things about God that are not true. There are times in my life, even as I've called myself a Christian, that I've believed certain things. I might not say it, but I've lived a belief about God that's not true. And the scripture reveals different things to me and helps me understand that what's more true about God. But all people in this room, outside of this room, all people have room to grow in how they know who God is. Every one of us. Here's the fact. The more you get to know who God is, the more you'll have hope in what he's promised for your future. Do you see the correlation? Not just the more you buy into it and become gullible and just say, okay, I'm, I'm optimistic, so I buy in, that's fine. What I'm saying is the more you know the nature, the character, the person of who God is, the more you'll have a hope for what the future will be, even if you don't fully understand all that's to come. Because the more that you know about God, the more that you know of his character, his nature, the more you see that he is our ultimate good. He wants what is best for us. He does what is best for us. He gives us what is best for us. And so the more you begin to understand who God is, his nature, his character, the more your hope will increase. And so we together, collectively, the more we talk about, understand, share with each other a common belief in who God really is, and the way God really acts, the more we'll have a collective hope rising amongst us. This is why Paul says he fervently prays for this. Because he knows that there's actually a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. There's a difference between the intellectual uh, assent, the intellectual agreement about things you might think are true about God, and then actually knowing God himself. The difference is oftentimes the time we spend with God, the experiences we share with God, the trust we build in God. But this all begins with our study of how God has revealed himself to us in Scripture. But Paul says, knowing God has its breakthrough, not just in study, but in prayer. We've got to spend not just personal time, but collective time praying, like Paul prayed in verses 15 through 17 when he said, my prayer is that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, that you would know who God is. That's what He wants for us. And so the Ephesians had faith, they had love. Paul had gratitude for them, and he was fervently praying that they would be cultivated 
to finally see God for who he is because here's what he knows. When we as a group know and worship God for who he is, we won't help it but have a hope. We can't help it but have a hope. So what is that hope actually? This is a review of the past few weeks. Quickly, number two, the substance of our hope. Verses eight, the second part of verse 18 and verse 19, Paul makes a statement. He says, I want you to know the hope to which you've been called to. Meaning, I don't want you just to labor in faith and experience love, but I actually want you to possess a hope of what you've been called to have, to share in. And he clarifies this with two statements. The first one is this, that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance. The riches of his glorious inheritance. Now we've talked over and over the last few weeks about that word inheritance in the Bible, especially here in the New Testament. Both Paul and Peter are borrowing this word from the Old Testament. It is the word that the Israelites used when they were describing the land that was promised to them that they would enter into once they left the, um, the captivity in Egypt. Moses led them out and they were going to enter into this land, but because of a lack of faith, they journeyed for some 40 years and then eventually Joshua led them into this land and this promised land was Israel's inheritance. And there's two really key important things about this word inheritance that the writers in the New Testament want us to get. That this place, first of all, was a perfect place. When you look in the Old Testament, it was intended for them, for Israel, to be a permanent dwelling. It was a place that had luxurious provisions, milk and honey, beautiful fruits, all kinds of delicate uh, items for us. And he says it's a place where there is no war and no enemies. No battles going on. No, no people attacking you. And finally, he says it's a place where we can have intimacy with God. And the imagery of what heaven will be like is this. It's a place where we will dwell without end. It's a place where there will be provisions in luxurious manner. It's a place where we will no longer be wrestling spiritual warfares anymore. We won't be battling evil. And it's a place where we will have unbroken, unhindered intimacy with God. That's the promise. But it isn't just a promise of a perfect place. You see, when Israel was supposed to enter into this promised land, this inheritance, God in Exodus 19 and 20 gave them a law written on tablets of stone called the Ten Commandments. And if they would have taken those Ten Commandments and had the ability to keep those Ten Commandments perfectly, they wouldn't have just entered into a perfect place. They would have been perfect people. You see, if we actually could keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, if we could do them right, we would be the kind of people that could facilitate a world without sin. But we all eventually end up breaking one of the ten at least, many more oftentimes. We don't live up to that. And the promise of the inheritance is this, that we will dwell in a perfect place, but God promises to finally make us perfect people. This is the promise He's given to us. When he says that when Jesus returns, our lowly body will be transformed to be like his body. Like John said, when he comes, we don't know what what we'll be, but we know we'll be like him. Not just in bodily form, but in his perfection. Finally, that place and that person of perfection. So that riches of his glorious inheritance, Paul does not want us to lose sight of that or forget about that. But secondly, Paul says that this hope is not just a glorious inheritance, but it's a greatness of God's power. 
So it's not just a hope that this future place will be amazing and that we hopefully maybe will be there someday, but our hope is also built on the fact that God's great power is, as Paul said, immeasurable. There's an immeasurable greatness to his power. As we said the last couple weeks, that word power, both used here by Paul and used by Peter when he talked about the power of God, power of God, is actually the word we see most often in the Gospels. It's the word that the gospel writers then translated into English would translate to the word miracle. When Jesus would walk around and he would heal somebody who was blind or he would heal a leper, he would raise somebody from the dead, that miracle, that word miracle is the word God's power. And what it means is that God is doing what no one else could do. Jesus as God in the flesh doing something that other human beings cannot do. And the immeasurable greatness of God's power is that he has done for us what we cannot do. And he's doing for us now what we cannot do. And the promise of his immeasurable power is not just what he did at the cross, but what he's doing for us now when he says that we, Peter said, are being guarded by God's power ready for the day in which Jesus will be revealed or returned. You see, we have to believe that God not only possesses the ability to give us this inheritance, but he also is active in keeping us safe until we get there and when you have a confidence a faith in God's immeasurable power and this perfected inheritance when we collectively remind each other of this inheritance that we're going to and we remind each other of this immeasurable power we will have a collective hope you see this inheritance and God's power as Paul is talking about are not actually meant to be private consolations for individual difficulties. Being reminded of heaven and being reminded of God's ability is not just supposed to be words used for individual problems to individual people. Because if you read the text there in verse 18 and 19, he says that his riches are in the saints, plural, of the inheritance. And the greatness of his power is towards us, collectively, who believe. You see, this is rather supposed to be the substance God's inheritance and his immeasurable power is supposed to be the substance of our church-wide collective conversation and ultimately the expression of our church-wide celebration and worship. We actually should be people reminding each other, singing about, talking about where we're going, what's lying in front of us, what's there for us. That when we're down on each other or down on ourselves and feeling low, we remind ourselves, hey, if you're, feel, if you're dealing with a difficult circumstance, let's remember where we're going to a place that won't have difficult circumstances. If you're down on yourself because you're not the kind of person you want to be, we have to remind ourselves, hey, we're going to a place where God, who promised in Philippians chapter 1, will finish the work he started in us. That he's going to sanctify us completely. And we've got to be reminding each other of this perfect place in this perfect state that we're going to be in someday. And when we grow weary in our faith, we remind each other of the greatness of God's immeasurable power. And when that becomes our collective conversation, it will naturally become our collective celebration and worship. And when we do that, we will be a church that doesn't just have faith and love, we'll be a church that has hope. But what is the impact of hope? Why do you think Paul cares that we have hope? Should we care? It's kind of an easy question, right? But why? 
Notice the end. It's kind of strange. We might look at this, but in verse 20 and verse 21, Paul references something after he talks about the inheritance and the greatness of God's power. He said the greatness of God's power was made known to us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, meaning the fact that God took Jesus Christ, a dead, lifeless body, and resurrected him back to life should tell you of God's immeasurable power. Okay, great. Are we supposed to be impressed by that power and just say, wow, that's amazing? Most certainly, but there's something else to it. Because he didn't just raise Jesus from the dead and then try to impress us with that. You see, some 40 days later, Jesus also ascended. So it's more than just resurrection, it's ascension. And he says in verse 20 this way, at speaking of his great power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. You see, the impact of the hope that God offers to us is what we see being revealed to us about where Jesus is right now. You see, when you're aware of where Jesus is right now and what he's doing right now, it has massive implications. It has dramatic impact on how you live today. You see, first of all, it has impact on your confidence. You ever walk around kind of nervous if you're going to make it to heaven? You ever feel kind of anxious, not, not sure if you're in or out? Notice some of the phrasings that, that Paul uses here. When he raised Jesus from the dead, what did he do with him after he ascended? Is he standing in heaven? He's seated in heaven. Meaning he's in the holy temple, the real temple, the one where God dwells. And in the physical representation of the temple in the Old Testament, there were no chairs. Do you know why there were no chairs? Because the work of the priest was never done. That sin was never fully atoned for, that sin was never done away with. In fact, Hebrews would say that they were reminded of sin year after year because they had to continue to offer sacrifices. But Jesus, upon his offering, burial, and resurrection, was the full accepted sacrifice that when he ascended to the holy temple, the real temple where God dwells, he doesn't stand and continue to offer himself day after day. Why? He can sit because his offering's been accepted now and forever. Do you trust that? See, when you trust that, when you know that, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, that he has finished his work, that has impact on your confidence in salvation. Secondly, it says he's seated at his right hand. The right hand was reserved for the one who has the most sway, the most power, the most influence over the king, over the one in authority. And when you look in 1 John, it says in chapter 2 that Jesus now at the right hand of God is our advocate. Meaning he's up there right now saying he or she, you, him, her, they're one of mine. So that when you stumble and you struggle, as John would say, if one of us sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The propitiation for our sins. Meaning Jesus is in heaven right now constantly presenting his case saying my blood has covered him. My blood has covered her. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Have you seen that demonstrated in the resurrection and the ascension that Jesus is now sitting at God's right hand? And what he's doing there is telling you that his work is done, that you can be accepted, and that daily he's advocating for you. This hope has an impact on our confidence, number one. It has an impact on our service. 
It changes the way we engage with this world. Jesus prayed it this way when he was teaching us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. As we think about what heaven will be, where we will live in a perfect place and be perfect people, as we think about that, it makes you long for it, doesn't it? It makes you want that kind of place, especially when you see injustice and suffering and hatred and all the problems of this world it eventually wears you down to where you just long for us to be in a place where sin is no more. And we as Christians should be the most hopeful people for a world that is to come. But that hope should have impact on how we live today. Jesus said when he prayed, he taught us how to pray. He said, Father, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Meaning believers in Jesus Christ have such a longing for heaven that they work day and night fighting tooth and nail to bring as much of heaven here as we live now. So we fight injustice. We deal with hatred. We fight against sin. And we encourage people to be the kind of people that they're going to be in heaven and to live and make a place that is as best as it can be. You see, our hope has an impact not only on our confidence, but the way that we serve this world, that we seek to bring as much of the taste of heaven to this place as possible so that we can show people what it will be like. This hope has impact on our confidence and service, but it also has impact on the way that we grieve and the way that we suffer. Uh, in the first century, Christians were suffering greatly. At first, it wasn't statewide sanctioned suffering by the government. It was just social suffering, cultural suffering. Christians were weird. They were different. They had this new form of philosophy, this new form of thinking, and they actually had this religion that believed that God was a man who chose to let himself die, but then he apparently came back to life. You can see how in the first century, especially even now, people would mock that belief. And Christians were suffering. They were, they were being left out of social circles. Their businesses were being hurt. And eventually, the Roman government, government began to suppress and hurt Christians to the point where at the end of the first century, there were people being led to the slaughter, weekly Christians, who would not renounce that Jesus is Lord and say Caesar is Lord. They wouldn't do it, and they were being killed for it. They were suffering. And Paul makes this really beautiful statement to the church at Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, I want you to know about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Every chapter in 1 Thessalonians talks about the return of Jesus. The return of Jesus is, the, is when this place called heaven begins. And he reminds them of that constantly. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. He says that we should grieve, but not like people who have no hope. Meaning, Christians should grieve, but they should not grieve like anybody else in the world. Our hope, our collective hope, is the very thing that allows us to endure suffering, to deal with loss, to face challenges in a way that is different than anybody else in the world. Where we look at suffering and we realize that we won't just get a reward for heaven, we'll be restored in heaven. That when we deal with loss, we realize that it's not the final say, it's not the end. We look at death and say, death no longer has its sting, no longer has its power. When we have a collective hope, what we do is we raise each other up to face our suffering and our grieving different than anybody else. Our collective hope has impact on the way that we grieve. But let me finish with this. Our collective hope has an impact on what we pursue or how we pursue. What we're chasing, you might say. 
What is it that you think you want most in this life? What is, what is the thing that you're chasing that's driving your engine? You know, everyone has sort of an internal engine, something that's driving them. Usually there's two or three things kind of out in front of us based upon the stage of life that we're in. You know, if we're not yet married, it might be, you know, a future family or a job. If we're kind of, you know, kids that are little, I'm not going to say it, but, you know, what's in front of us, uh, maybe a good night's sleep. Um, Maybe you're getting close to retirement. What's in front of you is kind of like longing for that time. There's always something in front of us. What's driving you? What, what is the thing you're chasing right now? You see, what you hope for drives your engine to what you pursue. It's what drives it. Now, I'm not sure the church in Ephesus ever really got this hope thing figured out. Paul prayed for it in chapter 1 that they would get this hope thing figured out. I'm not sure they did. We don't really see uh, later evidence, but the church in Ephesus is actually the church we have the most story about in the New Testament. You get Acts chapter 19, where the church is born. You get the epistle of Ephesians. First and second Timothy, most commonly is understood as Timothy preaching there. And then Revelation chapter 2, we get some story there. First John maybe too. Some people think John was written there. We get the story of them. And in the end, in Revelation chapter 2, we see this portrait of a steadfast, faithful church. But Jesus says this in Revelation 2 verse 4. He has one problem with the church in Ephesus. He says, you have abandoned the love that you first had when you became Christians. Meaning you have abandoned the thing that was driving you when you first became a Christian. Well, what was that? you got to go back to Acts chapter 19 and see what it was to really understand what was driving them at the very beginning of their faith. We see Ephesus was a very idolatrous nation, I'm sorry, idolatrous city. And there was a lot of sorcery going on. And when those Christians were converted, it says the moment they were converted, they brought their books of sorcery out to a bonfire. And it says they burned 50,000 drachmas worth of books. That's 50,000 days of work and value. Now, if you make $45,000 a year and you work 260 days a year, 2,080 hours, which is the typical year, that's $8.6 million of today's money that those Christians burnt in a heartbeat because of their faith in Jesus Christ. $8.6 million. You see, what Jesus said later in that moment, after in Revelation chapter 2, you've left the thing you were doing at first. He said this, you need to repent and do what you did at first. And here's what Acts 19 shows us. When they were converted, they had a pursuit of Christ-likeness at all costs. It didn't matter what it cost them. They were pursuing what it took to be like Jesus Christ. And here's the point. The Christian hope lays before us a glorious future, one that dwarfs all other hopes that this life has to offer. But when we as a church lose sight of this hope, we will grow stagnant of our pursuit of heaven. We might labor in faith. We might be steadfast in our work. We might fight against evil. We might keep right teachings and fight false teachings, but we will lose an energy a yearning, a longing for heaven if we forget about it. And the point is this. Churches that lose hope can maintain faith, 
can share love, but will stagnate in their sanctification. They will stagnate in their pursuit of becoming like Jesus Christ. This hope can motivate us individually to keep pursuing to be like Jesus, and it will fuel our exhortation of each other. When we keep this hope in the forefront of our minds and we love each other enough, we'll help each other. As Hebrews chapter 3 said, exhort one another daily while it is called today so that no one is lost in the deceitfulness of sin. We don't want anybody to miss this. As I reference 1 John chapter 3, it says, Beloved, can you imagine the kind of love the Father has had for us? And later he says that we don't, when he returns, when Jesus returns, we don't know what we'll be like, but we know this, we will be like him. And then John says in verse 3, whoever has this hope in him purifies himself. When we have a collective hope, we will be pursuing Christ-likeness together. And when we lose our hope, we might keep all of the forms and functions of church alive. We might have what we, people would call faithfulness. We might continue to take communion and preach and sing. We might do all the things that we are called to do as a church, but we will lose the energy it takes for personal transformation to become like Jesus Christ. We'll lose that. And that will be a terrible loss. The greatest demonstration of God's power the greatest miracle the world has ever seen was the cross of Jesus Christ. It was his greatest act of love and his greatest way of proving to us that he is trustworthy to deliver to us our deepest hope. So here's how you obey and we're done. Number one, what things can you do to know God better? It's New Year's time. What, can you, what discipline can you add to your life to begin to know God better? Let me encourage you with a few. Study for sure. Dedicated time in prayer time and reflection, meditation, contemplation. Maybe your drive to work can go without the radio one or two days a week and you could think about a passage of Scripture. What can you do to get to know God better? I'm not just talking intellectual, I'm talking relationally. What thing are you most afraid of right now that you could actually pause trying to fix and put into God's hands and watch Him work? How can you get to know God better? Number one. Number two, who is someone in your life right now that you can share this hope with. Come up with someone in your life that you can talk about this hope with. Who is it? And number three, just be willing to ask yourself if you need to recenter the pursuit of your life. Have lesser pursuits consumed you? Career, family, money, retirement. Have lesser pursuits consumed you? Do you need to recenter your pursuit of Christ's likeness? And if you do, the only way to find that is in, in a hope of what's to come. And if you don't have that hope, we want to give it to you. Let's stand and sing. If you need to come, you can come.